Welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing our reading of Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. We've two shorter chapters today, and they're quite linked, so we'll actually get through two in this one episode, and even then, it's a little bit of a shorter episode. As usual, check the show notes for footnotes and images that I reference. If you're not seeing the images, just go to abnormalmapping.com and go to the show's page. But without further ado, let's begin our two chapters for this week. Chapter 4. Export of Capital Typical of the old capitalism, when free competition held undivided sway, was the export of goods. Typical of the latest stage of capitalism, when monopolies rule, is the export of capital. Capitalism is commodity production at its highest stage of development, when labor power itself becomes a commodity. The growth of internal exchange, and particularly of international exchange, is a characteristic feature of capitalism. The uneven and spasmodic development of individual enterprises, individual branches of industry, and individual countries is inevitable under the capitalist system. England became a capitalist country before any other, and by the middle of the 19th century, having adopted free trade, claimed to be the workshop of the world, the supplier of manufactured goods to all countries, which, in exchange, were to keep her provided with raw materials. But in the last quarter of the 19th century, this monopoly was already undermined, for other countries, sheltering themselves with protective tariffs, developed into independent capitalist states. On the threshold of the 20th century, we see the formation of a new type of monopoly. Firstly, monopolist associations of capitalists in all capitalistically developed countries. Secondly, the monopolist position of a very few rich countries, in which the accumulation of capital has reached gigantic proportions. An enormous surplus of capital has arisen in the advanced countries. It goes without saying that if capitalism could develop agriculture, which today is everywhere lagging terribly behind industry, if it could raise the living standards of the masses, who in spite of the amazing technical progress, are everywhere still half-starved and poverty-stricken, there could be no question of a surplus of capital. This argument is very often advanced by the petty bourgeois critics of capitalism. But if capitalism did these things, it would not be capitalism for both uneven development and a semi-starvation level of existence of the masses are fundamental and inevitable conditions and constitute premises of this mode of production. As long as capitalism remains what it is, surplus capital will be used not for the purpose of raising the standard of living of the masses in a given country, for this would mean a decline in profits for the capitalists, but for the purpose of increasing profits by exporting capital abroad to the backward countries. In these backward countries, profits are usually high, for capital is scarce, and the price of land is relatively low. Wages are low, raw materials are cheap. The export of capital is made possible by a number of backwards countries having already been drawn into world capitalist intercourse. Main railways have either been or are being built in those countries. Elementary conditions for industrial development have been created, etc. The need to export capital arises from the fact that in a few countries, capitalism has become overripe and, owing to the backward state of agriculture and the poverty of the masses, capital cannot find a field for profitable investment. Here are approximate figures showing the amount of capital invested abroad 
by the three principal countries. Footnote 1. Figure 1. Showing the increased amount of capital invested over time by Great Britain, France, and Germany. This table shows that the export of capital reached enormous dimensions only at the beginning of the 20th century. Before the war, the capital invested abroad by the three principal countries amounted to between 175 billion and 200 billion francs, at the modest rate of 5%. The income from this sum should reach from 8 to 10 billion francs a year. A sound basis for the imperialist oppression and exploitation of most of the countries and nations of the world for the capitalist parasitism of a handful of wealthy states. How is this capital invested abroad distributed among the various countries? Where is it invested? Only an approximate answer can be given to these questions, but it is one sufficient to throw light on certain general relations and connections of modern imperialism. Figure 2, showing the distribution of foreign capital to different continents across the globe by Great Britain, France, and Germany. The principal spheres of investment of British capital are the British colonies, which are very large in America, for example, Canada, not to mention Asia, etc. In this case, enormous exports of capital are bound up most closely with vast colonies, of the importance of which for imperialism I shall speak later. In the case of France, the situation is different. French capital exports are invested mainly in Europe, primarily in Russia, at least 10 billion francs. This is mainly loan capital, government loans, and not capital invested in industrial undertakings. Unlike British colonial imperialism, French imperialism might be termed usury imperialism. In the case of Germany, we have a third type. Colonies are inconsiderable, and German capital invested abroad is divided most evenly between Europe and America. The export of capital influences and greatly accelerates the development of capitalism in those countries to which it is exported. While, therefore, the export of capital may tend to a certain extent to arrest development in the capital exporting countries, it can only do so by expanding and deepening the further development of capitalism throughout the world. The capital exporting countries are nearly always able to obtain certain advantages, the character of which throws light on the peculiarity of the epoch of finance, capital, and monopoly. The following passage, for instance, appeared in the Berlin Review, Die Bank, for October 1913. Quote, A comedy worthy of the pen of Aristophanes is lately being played on the international capital market. Numerous foreign countries, from Spain to the Balkan states, from Russia to Argentina, Brazil, and China, are openly or secretly coming into the big money market with demands, sometimes very persistent, for loans. The money markets are not very bright at the moment, and the political outlook is not promising. But not a single money market dares to refuse a loan, for fear that its neighbor may forestall it, consent to grant a loan, and so secure some reciprocal service. In these international transactions, the creditor nearly always manages to secure some extra benefit, a favorable clause in a commercial treaty, a coding station, a contract to construct a harbor, a fat concession, or an order for guns. Footnote 2. End quote. Finance capital has created the epoch of monopolies, and monopolies introduce everywhere monopolist principles. The utilization of connections for profitable transactions takes the place of competition on the open market. The most usual thing is to stipulate that part of the loan granted shall be spent on purchases in the creditor country, 
particularly on orders for war materials or for ships, etc. In the course of the last two decades, 1890 to 1910, France has very often resorted to this method. The export of capital thus becomes a means of encouraging the export of commodities. In this connection, transactions between particularly big firms assume a form which, as Schilder, footnote 3, mildly puts it, borders on corruption. Corrupt in Germany, Schneider in France, Armstrong in Britain, are instances of firms which have close connections with powerful banks and governments, and which cannot easily be ignored when a loan is being arranged. France, when granting loans to Russia, squeezed her in the Commercial Treaty of September 16, 1905, stipulating for certain concessions to run until 1917. She did the same in the Commercial Treaty with Japan of August 19, 1911. The tariff war between Austria and Serbia, which lasted, with a seven-month interval, from 1906 to 1911, was partly caused by Austria and France competing to supply Serbia with war materials. In January 1912, Paul Deschanel stated in the Chamber of Deputies that from 1908 to 1911, French firms had supplied war materials to Serbia to the value of 45 million francs. A report from the Austro-Hungarian consul at San Paulo, Brazil, states, quote, The Brazilian railways are being built chiefly by French, Belgian, British, and German capital. In the financial operations connected with the construction of these railways, the countries involved stipulate for orders for the necessary railway materials. End quote. Thus, finance capital, literally one might say, spreads its net over all countries of the world. An important role in this is played by banks founded in the colonies and by their branches. German imperialists look with envy at the old colonial countries, which have been particularly successful in providing for themselves in this respect. In 1904, Great Britain had 50 colonial banks, with 2,279 branches. In 1910, there were 72 banks, with 5,449 branches. France had 20 with 136 branches, Holland 16 with 68 branches, and Germany had only 13 with 70 branches. Footnote 4. The American capitalists, in their turn, are jealous of the English and German. Quote, in South America, they complained in 1915, five German banks have 40 branches, and five British banks have 70 branches. Britain and Germany have invested in Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay in the last 25 years approximately $4,000 million, and as a result, together enjoy 46% of the total trade of these three countries. Footnote 5. End quote. The capital-exporting countries have divided the world among themselves in the figurative sense of the term, but finance capital has led to the actual division of the world. Chapter 5. Division of the world among capitalist associations. Monopolist capitalist associations, cartels, syndicates, and trusts first divided the home market among themselves and obtained more or less complete possession of the industry of their own country. But under capitalism, the home market is inevitably bound up with the foreign market. Capitalism long ago created a world market. As the export of capital increased, and as the foreign and colonial connections and spheres of influence of the big monopolist associations expand in all ways, things naturally gravitated towards an international agreement among these associations, and towards the formation of international cartels. 
This is a new stage of world concentration of capital and production, incomparably higher than the preceding stages. Let us see how this supermonopoly develops. The electrical industry is highly typical of the latest technical achievements, and is most typical of capitalism at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th centuries. This industry has developed most in the two leaders of the new capitalist countries, the United States and Germany. In Germany, the crisis of 1900 gave a particularly strong impetus to its concentration. During the crisis, the banks, which by that time had become fairly well merged with industry, enormously accelerated and intensified the ruin of relatively small firms and their absorption by the larger ones. Quote, the banks, writes Jadels, refused a helping hand to the very firms in greatest need of capital, and brought on first a frenzied boom and then the hopeless failure of the companies which had not been connected with them closely enough. Footnote 6. End quote. As a result, after 1900, concentration in Germany progressed with giant strides. Up to 1900, there had been seven or eight groups in the electrical industry. Each consisted of several companies, altogether there were 28, and each was backed by from 2 to 11 banks. Between 1908 and 1912, all these groups were merged into two, or one. The following diagram shows the process. Figure 3, showing the shrinking number of groups in the electrical industry. The famous AEG, General Electric Company, which grew up in this way, controls 175 to 200 companies through the holding system and a total capital of approximately 1.5 billion marks. Of direct agencies abroad alone, it has 34, of which 12 are joint stock companies in more than 10 countries. As early as 1904, the amount of capital invested abroad by the German electrical industry was estimated at 233 million marks. Of this sum, 62 million were invested in Russia. Needless to say, the AEG is a huge combine. Its manufacturing companies alone number no less than 16, producing the most diverse articles, from cables and insulators to motorcars and flying machines. But concentration in Europe was also a component part of the process of concentration in America, which developed in the following way. Figure 4, showing American electric companies and their relationship to German ones. Thus, two electrical great powers were formed. There are no other electrical companies in the world completely independent of them, wrote Heinig in his article The Path of the Electric Trust. An idea, although far from complete, of the turnover and the size of the enterprises of the two trusts can be obtained from the following figures. Figure 5, showing turnover, employee numbers, and net profits of America and Germany's general electric companies between 1907 and 1911. And then, in 1907, the German and American trusts concluded an agreement by which they divided the world between them. Competition between them ceased. The American General Electric Company, GEC, got the United States and Canada. The German General Electric Company, AEG, got Germany, Austria, Russia, Holland, Denmark, Switzerland, Turkey, and the Balkans. Special agreements, naturally secret, were concluded regarding the penetration of daughter companies into new branches of industry, into new countries, formerly not yet allotted. 
The two trusts were to exchange inventions and experiments. Footnote 7. The difficulty of competing against this trust, actually a single worldwide trust controlling a capital of several billion, with branches, agencies, representatives, connections, etc., in every corner of the world is self-evident. But the division of the world between two powerful trusts does not preclude redivision if the relation of forces changes as a result of uneven development, war, bankruptcy, etc. An instructive example of an attempt at such a redivision of the struggle for redivision is provided by the oil industry. Quote, the world oil market, wrote Jidels in 1905, is even today still divided between two great financial groups, Rockefeller's American Standard Oil Company and Rothschild and Noble, the controlling interests of the Russian oil fields in Baku. The two groups are closely connected, but for several years five enemies have been threatening their monopoly. Footnote 8. End quote. 1. The exhaustion of the American oil fields. 2. The competition of the firm of Mantashev of Baku. 3. The Austrian oil fields. 4. The Romanian oil fields. 5. The overseas oil fields, particularly in the Dutch colonies. The extremely rich firms, Samuel and Shell, also connected with British capital. The last three groups are connected with the big German banks, headed by the huge Deutsche Bank. These banks independently and systematically developed the oil industry in Romania, for example, in order to have a foothold of their own. In 1907, the foreign capital invested in the Romanian oil industry was estimated at 185 million francs, of which 74 million was German capital. Footnote 9. A struggle began for the division of the world, as, in fact, it is called in economic literature. On the one hand, the Rockefeller Oil Trust wanted to lay its hands on everything. It formed a daughter company right in Holland and bought up oil fields in the Dutch Indies in order to strike at its potential enemy, the Anglo-Dutch Shell Trust. On the other hand, the Deutsche Bank and the other German banks aimed at retaining Romania for themselves and at uniting her with Russia against Rockefeller. The latter possessed far more capital and an excellent system of oil transportation and distribution. The struggle had to end, and it did end in 1907, with the utter defeat of the Deutsche Bank, which was confronted with the alternative, either to liquidate its oil interests and lose millions, or submit. It chose to submit, and concluded a very disadvantageous agreement with the oil trust. The Deutsche Bank agreed not to attempt anything which might injure American interests. Provision was made, however, for the annulment of the agreement in the event of Germany establishing a state oil monopoly. Then the comedy of oil began. One of the German finance kings, von Gwinner, a director of the Deutsche Bank, through his private secretary, Staus, launched a campaign for a state oil monopoly. The gigantic machine of the huge German bank and all its wide connections were set in motion. The press bubbled over with patriotic indignation against the yoke of the American trust, and on March 15, 1911, the Reichstag, by an almost unanimous vote, adopted a motion asking the government to introduce a bill for the establishment of an oil monopoly. The government seized upon this popular idea, and the game of the Deutsche Bank, which hoped to cheat its American counterpart and improve its business by a state monopoly, appeared to have been won. 
The German oil magnates already saw visions of enormous profits, which would not be less than those of the Russian sugar refiners. But firstly, the big German banks quarreled among themselves over the division of the spoils. The Disconto Gesellschaft exposed the covetous aims of the Deutsche Bank. Secondly, the government took fright at the prospect of a struggle with Rockefeller, for it was very doubtful whether Germany could be sure of obtaining oil from other sources. The Romanian output was small. Thirdly, just at that time, the 1913 credits of a billion marks were voted for Germany's war preparations. The oil monopoly project was postponed. The Rockefeller Oil Trust came out of the struggle, for the time being, victorious. The Berlin Review, Die Bank, wrote in this connection that Germany could fight the oil trust only by establishing an electricity monopoly and by converting water power into cheap electricity. Quote, but, the author added, the electricity monopoly will come when the produce is needed. That is to say, when the next great crash in the electrical industry is imminent, and when the gigantic, expensive power stations, now being put up at great cost everywhere by private electrical concerns, which are already obtaining certain franchises from towns, from states, etc., can no longer work at a profit. Water power will then have to be used, but it will be impossible to convert it into cheap electricity at state expense. It will also have to be handed over to a private monopoly controlled by the state. Because private industry has already concluded a number of contracts and has stipulated for heavy compensation, so it was with the nitrate monopoly, so it is with the oil monopoly, so it will be with the electrical power monopoly. It is time our state socialists, who allow themselves to be blinded by a beautiful principle, understood, at last, that in Germany the monopolies have never pursued the aim, nor have they had the result, of benefiting the consumer, or even of handing over to the state part of the promoter's profits. They have served only to facilitate, at the expense of the state, the recovery of private industries, which were on the verge of bankruptcy. Footnote 10. Such are the valuable admissions which the German bourgeois economists are forced to make. We see plainly here how private and state monopolies are interwoven in the epoch of finance capital, how both are but separate links in the imperialist struggle between the big monopolists for the division of the world. In merchant shipping, the tremendous development of concentration has ended also in the division of the world. In Germany, two powerful companies have come to the fore, the Hamburg America and the Norddeutscher Lloyd, each having a capital of 200 million marks in stocks and bonds, and possessing shipping tonnage to the value of 185 to 189 million marks. On the other hand, in America, on January 1st, 1903, the International Mercantile Marine Company, known as the Morgan Trust, was formed. It united nine American and British steamship companies, and possessed a capital of 120 million dollars, 480 million marks. As early as 1903, the German giants and this American-British trust concluded an agreement to divide the world with a consequent division of profits. The German companies undertook not to compete in the Anglo-American traffic. Which ports were to be allotted to each was precisely stipulated. A joint committee of control was set up, etc. This agreement was concluded for 20 years, with the prudent provision for its annulment in the event of war. Footnote 11. Extremely instructive also is the story of the formation of the International Rail Cartel. The first attempt of the British, Belgian, and German rail manufacturers to form such a cartel 
was made as early as 1884, during a severe industrial depression. The manufacturers agreed not to compete with one another in the home markets of the countries involved, and they divided the foreign markets in the following quotas. Great Britain, 66%. Germany, 27%. Belgium, 7%. India was reserved entirely for Great Britain. Joint war was declared against a British firm, which remained outside the cartel, the cost of which was met by a percentage levy on all sales. But in 1886, the cartel collapsed when two British firms retired from it. It is characteristic that agreement could not be achieved during subsequent boom periods. At the beginning of 1904, the German Steel Syndicate was formed. In November 1904, the International Rail Cartel was revived, with the following quotas. Britain, 53.5%. Germany, 28.83%. Belgium, 17.67%. France came in later and received 4.8%, 5.8%, and 6.4% in the first, second, and third year, respectively, over and above the 100% limit, i.e. out of a total of 104.8%, etc. In 1905, the United States Steel Corporation entered the cartel, then Australia and Spain. Quote, At the present time, wrote Vogelstein in 1910, the division of the world is complete, and the big consumers primarily the state railways, since the world has been parceled out without consideration for their interests, can now dwell like the poet in the heavens of Jupiter. Footnote 12. End quote. Let me also mention the International Zinc Syndicate, which was established in 1909, and which precisely apportioned the output among five groups of factories, German, Belgian, French, Spanish, and British, and also the International Dynamite Trust, which, Liefman says, is, quote, quite a modern, close alliance of all the German explosives manufacturers who, with the French and American dynamite manufacturers, organized in a similar manner, have divided the whole world among themselves, so to speak. Footnote 13. End quote. Liefman calculated that in 1897, there were altogether about 40 international cartels in which Germany had a share, while in 1910, there were about a hundred. Certain bourgeois writers, now joined by Karl Kotsky, who has completely abandoned the Marxist position he had held, for example, in 1909, have expressed the opinion that international cartels, being one of the most striking expressions of the internationalization of capital, give the hope of peace among nations under capitalism. Theoretically, this opinion is absolutely absurd, while in practice, it is sophistry and a dishonest defense of the worst opportunism. International cartels show to what point capitalist monopolies have developed, and the object of the struggle between the various capitalist associations. This last circumstance is the most important. It alone shows us the historico-economic meaning of what is taking place, for the forms of struggle may and do constantly change in accordance with varying relatively specific and temporary causes, but the substance of the struggle, its class content, positively cannot change while classes exist. Naturally, it is in the interests of, for example, the German bourgeoisie, to whose side Kotsky has in effect gone over in his theoretical arguments, I shall deal with this later, to obscure the substance of the present economic struggle, the division of the world, 
and to emphasize now this and now another form of the struggle. Kotsky makes the same mistake. Of course, we have in mind not only the German bourgeoisie, but the bourgeoisie all over the world. The capitalists divide the world, not out of any particular malice, but because the degree of concentration which has been reached forces them to adopt this method in order to obtain profits, and they divide it in proportion to capital, in proportion to strength, because there cannot be any other method of division under commodity production and capitalism. But strength varies with the degree of economic and political development. In order to understand what is taking place, it is necessary to know what questions are settled by the changes in strength. The question as to whether these changes are purely economic or non-economic, e.g. military, is a secondary one, which cannot in the least affect fundamental views on the latest epoch of capitalism. To substitute the question of the form of the struggle and agreements, today peaceful, tomorrow warlike, the next day warlike again, for the question of the substance of the struggle and agreements between capitalist associations is to sink to the role of a sophist. The epoch of the latest stage of capitalism shows us that certain relations between capitalist associations grow up, based on the economic division of the world, while parallel to and in connection with it, certain relations grow up between political alliances, between states, on the basis of the territorial division of the world, of the struggle for colonies, of the struggle for spheres of influence. This concludes our fourth reading from Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. If you have suggestions for readings, questions, comments, or corrections, email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. Check out abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts there about movies, books, video games, and anime. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. But that's all for this week. Thanks for listening, and keep reading.